Welcome into this Trending in Education Extra. Dan Stravert here to introduce our latest episode on the heels of our LeBron James and I Promise School episode from Tuesday, which if you haven't listened to yet, you can always go back to do so. We want to talk to Tarlin Ray, co-founder of Kaplan Labs, around the idea of what we can learn from the NBA on millennial workforce engagement. He points to the Golden State Warriors as one of the few franchises that have done it right and understand how to get the most out of this recent generation to join the workforce. He and Mike Palmer talk through that and other ideas around the NBA and workforce training and workforce readiness that may be gleaned from the National Basketball Association. This is part of a longer conversation that we had, so you hear about 30 minutes of it here. Great content from Tarlin and Mike. Appreciate them both taking the time. And as always, Share it on Twitter. Share the conversation. Join the conversation. Follow us on Twitter at Trending and Ed. It's the same on Facebook. Share it with friends. Start the conversation. Bring us into it. We'd be happy to talk about this and all the other topics we've talked about in the past. With no further ado, we join Tarlin talking about the Golden State Warriors franchise. I think as a franchise, they're one of the few organizations you look at to understand how to deal with the workforce of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They are applying principles um, where they're thinking about caring, belonging, creativity, compassion, passion, mm-hmm. and they're trying to instill that in everyone that's in the organization. And I'll, we'll have conversation not only with the players on the court, but even individuals that are not on the court, giving them a voice. So the Patriots, and we're talking today, the Patriots are sort of an old school hierarchical approach to being great. Mm-hmm. they are sort of that blue chip company that may not be in the fortune five and more likely won't be in the fortune five years to come. The, the philosophy that golden state is using as bowsing is one that can carry through. I could see Steve Kerr five years from now going into large organizations and trying to teach people how to connect and build bridges with the workers of, of tomorrow, the talent there's another uh there's another head coach uh up in the the boston area uh brad stevens uh who uh arguably is of that same uh makeup although i know it might be difficult for you to come around to uh to recognizing uh that type of leadership and that type of orientation within the celtics but But I I i love him yeah he's really impressive right he did the same thing at butler too like he did a lot with uh, in that case, in Butler was a slightly different challenge where it's like taking a mid mid major as far as it can go. Uh, and actually, what he did at Butler, like you know, was more about elevating those players and like everyone on the team is a captain. And like he does seem next level, but um, but can we take a step back though, uh, Tarlin? And maybe just uh, when we first started talking about this, we wanted to do an NBA show, we wanted to get Tarlin back because you're uh, by the way, a lot of these articles are talking about uh, generational experts. Uh, I think we can almost call you. I know you've read some books and you have some experience. I mean, I'll say it. Yeah, say it. Generational expert, Tarlin Ray. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Generational expert. So we wanted to bring a generational expert back, but we thought you had a, you sort of had a hypothesis, which you just talked about, which is that we can learn a lot about how to engage the, the millennial uh, and Gen Z workforces by, by looking to the NBA and how the NBA has sort of examples of millennials, both good and bad, right? Like both, uh, you know, cases where, where the right tactics are working and uh, programs are really performing, but also examples of cases where 
the wrong orientation is there and uh, and organizations are actually losing their engagement with uh, with their workforce. So that was sort of like the, that was the premise that let us talk about the MBA a lot, right? So you want to talk, maybe let's stick on the Warriors for a period of time. And sure. I, I just, as you were talking, I haven't thought about this, but Steve Kerr. Yep. Player, I, I correct me, at least five rings, I think three with the Bulls, a couple with the Spurs. Yep. yep. Then he becomes a, Commentator makes sense, you know, smart guy. Then parlays that into becoming a GM. Okay, who knew he could do that? And then he becomes a first-time coach, and it was a crazy hire. Most people said it's just uh, Lacob or one of the owners' golf buddies. And what does a first-time coach do? Most people will put put on the suit. It's the theater of I have to show that I'm in charge, and he immediately showed vulnerability which you don't see in a lot of leaders. And it's something that I think the next generation millennials did uh, a Gen Z respond to. So he showed vulnerability by saying, we'll take any and all ideas. Mm -hmm. And then he started to outline sort of how we're gonna operate as an organization. Mm -hmm. And he created, you know, I laid out, I started talking about some of, the, some of those characteristics, but it became familial. If you think about, the 2016, 17, 2018 Warriors, there's only six guys that I play, well, I played all three years. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, they have some of the best players in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but I would say they don't win unless they get people to buy in. Yep. So he's created a way, an organization where he's willing to be wrong. He's clearly outlined what's important and in outlining what's important it actually strikes a nerve with people that are in the organization. Some of which is, it's okay to have fun. Mm -hmm. We're gonna work hard and have fun, which is, is wild. Think about some of the coaches out there, the Papa Vision of the world would never do that. Right. Then he's able to insert guys who have been in totally other toxic environments and get them to buy in. And then the last thing is, he's willing to be the one that doesn't have all the answers. So mm -hmm. most people will go back to the 2016 series or the, the uh, Warriors are behind. It's in the four, going to game four, and an assistant, I don't know what his title is, a production assistant, Nick, Nick O'Rearen, I can't pronounce his name, this uh, comes out and says, why don't we put the deck, why don't we start with the death lineup, which is no, no, put Bogut, Andrew Bogut on the, on the bench, we're gonna put Iguodala in the lineup, and we're just gonna try to run him off the floor. Mm -hmm. Now they had tinkered with it. Um, but he saw and spent a lot of time said, I think that's the right idea. And he ran with it. And, yep. and running with it, the thing that I think is most important for all leaders as you think about this next generation, when he was asked about his decision, he said, you should talk to Nick. Mm -hmm. It was his idea. Yep. And that, for me, as you think about talent in the organization, often they feel like they're muffled. Their ideas are never going to be, they're not going to listen to. And even if they do something, am I ever going to really get sort of any validation for it? I think that was a massive moment for leaders as they think about driving forward to, to work with the next generation of, of employees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, talking about it from the perspective of the managers, which I, which I think is really interesting, or like the, the, the GM, the coach, you know, the Steve Kerr, the Brad Stevens, which I think is really interesting. Some of the articles we were looking at also talked about how we could understand the millennial mindset themselves. So like, what can we learn from uh, NBA talent? Like, you know, we talked about LeBron, uh, Kevin Durant, uh, some of these other guys get discussed. Um, are there aspects of 
you know, the popular understanding of the NBA mindset uh, for the, from a player's perspective that you think are consistent with uh, like maybe some truths about uh, millennials or, or about Gen Z? Because a lot of these articles, I felt like some of them fell prey to some myths, but there's probably some uh, insights to be had about really empathizing more, more with millennials or Gen Z and using the examples of sort of prominent NBA players to, to figure those things out? Yeah, so stick with me and you, you wave your hands or just cut me off if I'm not answering. But let, let's go back into the 80s, 90s. Uh-huh. We got the Dominic Wilkins. It's the Atlanta Hawks. We got Larry Bird, Celtics. Yeah, we had, good, we had proper shorts, the way, the way God intended shorts to be made. Yeah, keep, keep going. Yep. Patrick Ewing, yep. you had staple affiliated with the organization. Yep. So, yes, those were personalities, but the loyalty was that organization. It would be so rare to hear about any player movement, even though there was still free agency. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, very similar to what you saw with employees and organizations. Like you would go into an organization, you have parents that worked for 30 years, that worked their way up, their corporate, up the corporate ladder, and they were loyal to, they would wear the G and others on their, on their shirt. Let's skip the 90s. I think the 90s was a lost, lost basketball. It was, oh, that's when, the, that's when the Knicks were okay. The two Knicks fans, the big fella. Grandmama. Yeah, the only Knicks, the relevant Knicks game, I think you would have won if OJ – didn't, we didn't all turn the TV well, Little known fact, John Starks was actually a millennial. Like, people don't know that. <laughs> That's a jo- that was a joke. Yeah, thank you for laughing. Yeah. Um, he's like, more to come. <laughs> um, so the 90s, you know, we, we, I sort of like this middle period, but then we started to see a real shift, and especially in the um, 2000s, where there was less of this belief that you had to stick it out with the same organization. Mm-hmm. You get drafted, they're going to have your rights for a period of time. But, but other than you, you uh, give your blood, sweat, and tears to that city and that team, but why wouldn't you look for the best opportunity for yourself? Mm-hmm. And so that's very similar to what we see, especially with tech talent. You have technologists, developers who in the past, if you had a resume where you bounce year after year after year, people would say, and what's wrong with you? It's on you. Like, why can't you stick? Oh, this person has no loyalty. Right. Now, if a developer has a job every, every year, it's just because they're going to the, they're trying to get to Google. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get to Amazon. They're, right. they're a higher gun. They're just mm-hmm. well. So that person is leaving because they're going for a better opportunity. They're right. leaving because it's better for them and they can make more money. It's mm-hmm. very similar to what's happening in the NBA with talent today. Right. But it is interesting. I think you're right. I think coming back to LeBron, it is interesting that he was good enough and then he was thoughtful enough about his career, both within the NBA and beyond, to go back to Cleveland. You know, and that, that to me was a little bit of a nod to uh, maybe an older idea of loyalty and also uh, probably a deeper idea of like meaning and finding, finding value in the entirety of his career. Also like undoing uh, you know, like he became a villain after, uh, after the decision. And then he had enough forethought about his own brand and his own personal narrative to go back to Cleveland, which, uh, which I thought is an interesting point. It's it sort of, I guess it would make sense if you were to analogize that to, uh, to a, like a, a high potential, uh, you know, millennial employee who starts somewhere maybe close to home 
pursues something big elsewhere and then realizes, oh, I can find more value back there. I think it is interesting. I talked to you a little bit in the prep, Tarlin. Like, I think sometimes we tend to find the story we're looking for. And I think it is interesting when someone who, someone who's as big a personality as LeBron actually winds up doing something that, that actually is more about pursuing meaning and more about, uh, you know, coming home. And even in this world of like the, the, the nomadic, you know, I'm, I'm getting me mine, I need, to, I need to get paid sort of narrative about millennials. It is interesting to understand that they are still seeking meaning in their lives. You know, again, using the NBA as an example, LeBron going back to Cleveland and winning a championship for Cleveland, like that's, that's probably a lesson even for millennials, right? Like he made choices that were not exclusively in his own best interest. It wasn't purely, let me go to the most dominant team. Granted, he went to a team where he could win, but like he was still looking for personal fulfillment with that choice. Yeah, so I think I like the way you're saying, uh, you're searching for meaning. Let's, let's think about the first move to Miami. Mm -hmm. disaster around the decision. So Jim Gray and them sitting, that was crazy, but he raised like a million dollars for, but no one's, let's talk about that. But what he did was something that he had actually done in high school. So four of his buddies, they're all playing the same AAU team. They like playing together. So they all decided to go to the same school, St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. And then they rolled and they won state championships. So in his mind, he was like, well, why wouldn't I do that again? Sure. These are, these are my guys. Right. Uh, you know, you know, the banana boat crew of Carmelo and Dwayne Wade, like these Chris are Paul, people, yeah. Chris Paul, I've known, and I love to figure out how I can play together. I want to, I want to redo what we did in high school. So right. for him, that was creating that sort of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back, he's a, he's a, he's a product of that environment. Yeah. To do the I Promise School is showing that he has always had a long-term vision to invest back in the community. Yep. The community, which is crazy. No one, I, I never knew the story where he missed 83 days of yep. fourth grade because he just couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. But no one wants to, no one, no one has, that. that is why he went back despite having an owner or yep. a boss that he can't stand. Right. It took, I, I don't think I could do that. Right. But he was thinking beyond one single person, mm-hmm. the person pulling the purse strings um, because he felt like he could make a bigger impact uh, outside of it. So that, so you, you say millennials, if you think about the brands they're interested in or even companies, they want to know it's mission driven. They want to know it's authentic voice and there's some soul to it. Right. So he created that in his move back and wasn't allowing what didn't need Dan Gilbert to create the opportunity. He knew he was now that he was back, he could create that opportunity on his own. Yeah. I mean, he was also looking for his legacy. Right. And like and that is an interesting context just to kind of I, I almost want to expand on your point just about um, millennials, because like I actually think some of these things are true regardless of your generation. Like people are looking for intrinsic value. They're looking for meaning, meaning in their lives. That's just good across the board. The appetite for risk, the willingness to, to try something new, maybe that skews towards, towards the younger generations. But I think it is interesting to, to look at where, uh, even looking at the example of Kevin Durant, you know, like if you look at the decisions he's made over the course of his career, like he's also been looking for meaning and he's also been trying to establish 
his legacy, uh, you know, within the NBA and within his own career and his brand. And, uh, and, and even his decision in many ways, uh, you know, his decision to move to Golden State um, is pretty similar to LeBron's original decision uh, to, go to, uh, to go to Miami and even to the to level to which he's been beat up about it, uh, you know, around that move. If you take a step back, though, they're both at different points in their lives making decisions to sort of pursue meaning, pursue a championship, and sort of understand what's best for their brand. I think that's, that's certainly illustrative of, like, you know, what millennials and Gen Zs are doing. But I feel like that advice probably makes sense regardless of your age, you know? And I, and I just feel like sometimes we gravitate to the generational narrative when there's probably lessons to learn that are even bigger than, than just the lesson as it relates to, uh, to, to sort of generations in the workforce. Does that make sense to you or, or, or do you think that it does? That, it yeah. does. Um, part of the reason if, if we are now in a talent economy, right? Mm -hmm. So it is, how are you marketing yourself? What is your personal brand? How do you measure your talent? Because at the end of the day, we will get beyond the one page, two page resume, which no one, it's this nonsensical, no one actually reads and everyone's going to, have some sort of competency-based um, learning or some competency-based uh, um, tokens or some way to show like what they actually know. Mm -hmm. The only reason to probably anchor around uh, millennials or younger generations is because they grew up with the technology that enables them and comfort level to be more social, to be more, uh, I'm not, this is a broad statement, but you just grew up around this technology, the sharing mm -hmm. and the willingness to um, sort of create a persona early. It, it is probably less prevalent in the older generation because they're still, it, it is not natural. This is yep. riding a bike for the younger generation. You're like learning a new skill for the older generation. So I agree with your, your, your premise, but I, I would still anchor that it's probably more prevalent in the younger generation just because of their, their advantage. And <laughs> And also, and I, and also, like the, their size and their their long term upside. If you can actually solve this puzzle, right? So, like the the premise, which I would agree with, is that engaging with these emerging generations likely will require different tactics than the tactics that worked historically with the older generations when they were younger. So, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I just think some of the tactics. Like I, we talked before about the notion of like transformist, the, the idea that like there are sort of almost like psychographic or I don't even know the right term for it, but there are certain profiles that uh, aren't necessarily 100% tied to your age that, that really exist within the broader workforce. And some folks are actually able to be flexible throughout their lives. And uh, I just think it's important not to uh, ignore that segment but I, but I also think your bigger point of like, if you're trying to launch a technology venture, or if you're trying to modernize your workforce, you're trying to, you're trying to run an organization that's going to need to stay relevant through the digital transformation that we're talking about, you're going to have to address the talent gaps that can be best filled by people who are just coming out of college, people who are just coming into the workforce. So I think that, that point makes makes tremendous sense. And I, I don't want to be dismissive of it. I just like to, to sort of remind uh, 
myself at least, and then since I'm talking out loud, everyone who's listening, uh, <laughs> that that just pegging this as a exclusive, like that the tools that work for millennials probably are healthy for people who are not millennials to be engaging with as well. And if you historically haven't been as digitally oriented, if you're interested in having a career with value in it over the next, say, 10, 15 years, you might want to even, and you even, I've heard you uh, be a proponent of this, Tarlin, like you might even want to flip the mode and actually listen and learn to learn from the younger generation and be open to like, to like learning from each other. Cause like intergenerational diversity is actually a good thing. Right. Right. But so I'm going to, I agree with what you're saying, but then listen to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You're basically saying that the people have worked really hard and gotten, you know, climbed the ladder and been, have a ton more experience and you now need to flip and actually learn something from the younger generation, which over time, it, it, you know, yeah, generation to generation, you sort of climb your way up so that you can sort of bash <laughs> the generation below or treat them as the workers that are individuals that are going to do the grunt work for you. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is with technology advancement, the grunt work is changing. You don't okay. need someone doing as much filing. You don't need someone staying up late to do the faxing. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just not sure there's as many red pill takers out there to say, sorry, matrix reference. I, I got you. I got you. <laughs> to, to say, wow, the nature of work is shifting and I need to have more of a comfort level with the tools and the way that the younger generation interacts because it's just so natural to them because right. it literally is then going back to school. We don't have any, I don't know how many LLLs, what percentage of society are lifelong learners right. to say it's hard to do because learning is hard. I binge watched billions on the weekend. That's a fantastic show. I right. didn't do anything. Oh, you, I awesome. bet you learned a lot about, uh, about what it would be like to be those guys, right? Like, so, and you, I learned a lot about manipulation. I maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing for me though, is like, I think that segment of lifelong learners is increasing maybe at a much faster rate than the way, the way you might be characterizing it. And I actually think part of why I sort of stick to this point is that, I actually think there's a little, there's an element of advocacy that I actually, I genuinely believe in. And like, it's not like we almost need to wake up the people who are sort of of the profile you're talking about where like, I, I got to where I am using these old tactics and they were wonderful and everybody else better learn how to work around me because I'm the boss. And, and this is, I'm getting this in part from you, but like, like evangelizing to those folks, not just even at the top, but just people who are further on in their career to, to sort of encourage that openness. And then that openness, I think it works in both directions where like we have to get millennials and Gen Z to realize like not all the hashtag olds uh, like me are, are checked out and aren't, aren't aware and, and don't know how to you know, program their, their, their VCR. You see, see what I did there? But like, uh, you I know, know, I just like feel like- I know you like the snap face and Insta chat. <laughs> snap face, I love the snap face. Oh my God. But, um, but you know what I mean? Like that's why that's, that's why I, I definitely appreciate what you're bringing to the table and I think it's right, but I think there's a, there's a risk that it becomes almost too much focused on solving the problem for the millennials and the Gen Z 
and not necessarily affecting the change among the people who have the, the most power in the dynamic. It's similar to how I think about diversity and inclusion, frankly, like more broadly, like, like white men need to be part of the solution because they still have a lot of the instruments of, of power. So like you almost need to wake up in, in a way that makes sense, the people who have the power to let them know that they're ultimately better off uh, by engaging diversity in a more genuine way. And I just think if you do that in a way that is too threatening to the people who have the power, they wind up checking out and you don't really get anywhere in the conversation, you know? And, and I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. So think about what you just said. So I'm not disagreeing. So if I'm saying we need to make sure we understand the younger generation and you got to make sure you open up your eyes, change is hard. So that, that is literally the first step. You're dipping your toe in to say, okay, it's easy for someone to, who is an older generation to say, let me, let me look at this a different way. And I'm not saying it's easy. Like, so that's your first step. Yep. Then once you have someone sort of fully engaged in that way and like, okay, I, I now see, I, I need to stop. I need to start thinking differently. Then you can say, oh, by the way, this is bi-directional. Mm -hmm. And so reverse mentoring is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I'm always, and if, if imagine someone, a younger generation, then it's always the call. I'm sure you get it. I just had two this week where someone wanted to kind of pick your brain and I'm happy to. If someone, as long as someone's coming prepared and they tell me exactly what they want to talk about, I'm always happy to spend the time. And someone who is being asked, you feel good about these, feel good. You want to try to connect the dots for someone and see how you can help out. I think the same thing could happen with someone in the younger generation, being able to do that for someone who is not as facile with, with digital technologies and, and can just get some information. So I think the bi-directional will happen, but it can't, it's like, getting someone older in duration to eat their vegetables, it can't happen until they are fully aware that they should, they can actually learn something from. Yep. So I agree with you. I'm just, it's a staging. I think the staging without the staging, it's just a jumbled mess. You got to take people through the process in order to, to, to be a better receiver of, of the learning. And, and part of that, I guess is, is it's really trying to get through to the aging set to a certain extent, right? Like, so like part of it is actually getting, Either that or, or looking to, like, I'm, I'm just trying to understand what's the recommendation for uh, developing these modern workforces. You know, some of the leadership will be part of Gen X and up. Is it encouraging that leadership to embrace some of these new media and, and empathize with the emerging generations? Or is it more empower these emerging generations to manage themselves? Like, I'm not, I'm not really clear where, where the target is. Like, who... I think the first, so if you're just talking about the leaders and most of the time, unless you're early stage growth venture company, you're going to, your leaders are going to be on the older generation. Yep. I challenge um, organizations to, to, to figure out how often they're actually listening, listening to the younger generation and listening could mean that they have innovation pods where they're collecting ideas. Are they doing engagement in such a way where it's not, on a yearly basis and you're actually not being actionable off of some of the things you're hearing? Are you holding shorter town halls and taking immediate questions instead of reporting out? So the first test is, are you actually listening to the, the, uh, dominant, the dominant workforce will be, you know, 75% of the workforce in 2025. And that's mm -hmm. it, it, that, so there's no systems other. If you, you'll know whether or not you're listening. If you're totally top down and you're continuing to drive, 
and that group is not a part of, in some way, part of the fabric, then that's the first suggestion. And similar to what Steve Kerr, bringing it back to basketball, because I, I thought we'd talk more about basketball here, and this is really – That's good. I, I was about to say, we need a little more basketball before we wrap up. So bring, it back to, bring it back to basketball. Yeah. Steve Kerr listened to his 20-year-old assistant, Nick, and then not only trusted him in the, in the most important game of their series, mm -hmm. but then once it actually worked, made sure everyone knew about it. So not only listen, but actually take some action on some of the things you're hearing. Be willing to be wrong in small ways and big ways. Not mm -hmm. saying you need to change your whole strategy because a 27-year-old says do something. But, but if, you, if you're, you know if you're actually plugging, tapping into that resource, you just know. And if the answer is no, I would highly recommend, I think organizations will be in trouble sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you remember uh, a couple of years back doing a generation podcast where I may have been a little uh, hesitant to declare myself a millennial. I feel like with Tarlin here and the discussions we've had, I feel a lot more happy about being a millennial. I, I'm coming oh. around to it. So um, I, it's, it's a growth mindset. I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to be born when I was born and, and part of that generation. But great conversation as always. Uh, I appreciate Tarlin coming on. Mike, as always, great insight. Uh, and you can find our, our podcast every Tuesday. The regular episodes dropping there. We have extras dropping almost every Friday now, so stay tuned there as well. Find us on Twitter at Trending and Ed. The same on Facebook, uh, and our YouTube channel is up and running as well. And search uh, Trending in Education on there. Uh, videos going up pretty much weekly. With that said, hope you guys have a great day. We'll uh, enjoy your weekends, and we'll be back on Tuesday morning with Trending in Education.